Hello, I'm Edwina Johnson, Director of Byron Writers Festival. You're listening to the podcast Grief Does It Never End, featuring Nikki Gemmell, Heather Taylor Johnson, and Charlie Veron in conversation with Sarah Armstrong. Recorded live at the 2017 Byron Writers Festival. For more information about the festival, please visit byronwritersfestival.com. Yes, hello everyone. I'm Sarah Armstrong and I'm chairing this afternoon's discussion uh, where we ask the question whether grief ever ends. Before we get on and I introduce you to our panel, I just want to say that the Byron Writers Festival is proud to be fundraising again this year for the important work that the Indigenous Literacy Foundation does. The foundation aims to address literacy rates in communities where often only two out of ten children can read and write at the basic minimum level. So if you love reading, please make a donation in the box as you leave today or there's an ILF tent where you can find out more information about that. Thank you. So grief. Grief, I think, like death, is something that, uh, at least in Western societies, we struggle to face or to talk openly and freely about. Today, here though, we will be talking about it, uh, and with three writers who have quite different perspectives on grief, not just grief over the loss of a beloved person, but grief for the devastation of our natural world that climate change will bring, and the grief and loss that comes with chronic illness. So let me introduce our writers on the far side. We have Nikki Gemmell. She's a Sydney-based writer of four non-fiction books and 13 novels, including the internationally best-selling The Bride Stripped Bear. She's a columnist for the Weekend Australian magazine. And her most recent book is After, a memoir about her mother's choice almost two years ago to die by suicide while in terrible pain following an unsuccessful operation. Nikki started writing after her mother's death in an attempt, as she says, to understand what shaped her mother and her mother's final act. It's a powerfully candid and raw book about grief, about euthanasia and about a complex mother-daughter relationship. Heather Taylor-Johnson is a poet and novelist from Adelaide. She's published four collections of poetry and two novels. Her second novel, Jean Harley Was Here, is an exploration of grief with each... I'll just do a little show and tell. Jean mm -hmm. Harley was here. Uh, each chapter presenting a different character's perspective of Jean, a woman who dies after being hit by a car while riding her bike. And the reader never meets Jean, but over the course of the novel, a picture of her is built steadily in different people's memories of her. Heather's also edited a recently released poetry anthology, Shaping the Fractured Self, Poetry of Chronic Illness and Pain, which is very moving and offers an insight into a form of grief that I think is all too rarely acknowledged. And next to me is Charlie Veron. He's a scientist and the world's foremost expert on coral. In fact, he's known as the godfather of coral. He's identified more than 20% of the world's coral species and has completely redefined how we understand coral reefs and the way they evolve. David Attenborough has likened him to a modern-day Charles Darwin, and in fact, he was nicknamed Charlie um, after Charles Darwin, and in, given that nickname in primary school because of his passion for the natural world, he was born John, not Charlie. Uh, he's published widely on coral, and in 2008 published the book A Reef in Time, which some people have described as the coral reef's equivalent to Rachel Carson's book Silent Spring, in which he warned of the sixth mass extinction facing the planet because of climate change, and a lot of the predictions he made there have come to pass, sadly. And in his just-released memoir, 
A Life Underwater, Charlie writes of his childhood, his family, his career, his deep love for coral reefs and the Great Barrier Reef in particular. And I should say that this evening in Byron Bay, he'll be introducing a screening of Chasing Coral, which is a documentary in which he appears and which um, explores the mass bleaching of the world's reefs. So please join me in welcoming our writers. <laughs> Charlie, if I could begin with you, your book, your memoir, is in so many ways like a love story to coral reefs and to the Great Barrier Reef in particular. You describe the extraordinary beauty and wonder of the reefs and you really take us there to the sort of the rapture you feel at times when diving. And then your book becomes something more like a lament or, or a requiem for the reef. Just how bad are things for the reef? Is, is it doomed? Well, yes, it is. Um, the Great Barrier Reef won't be the Great Barrier Reef for much longer. Uh, it's dying, and I know it. And this is something that's very hard for me to say because I've been diving on the Great Barrier Reef for 50 years. And it's the, the physical world is the thing I love most. And to witness this slow death is horrible. Um, I'm taking a journalist out on the reef in two days' time, it'll be more of the same. Um, to say it's not something I enjoy doing anymore. Mm. But I sure have had um, a long time loving the Great Barrier Reef. Uh, it's something everybody should see and love and be part of. And um, But I'd say be very choosy now where you're going because a lot of it's not worth seeing anymore. Is the reef like the canary in the coal mine in terms of effects of climate change? Oh, climate? very much so, and that's, <clears throat> that's solid science. Um, the first um, big ecosystem to go down is always a coral reef, and there's very good reasons for that, because they're sensitive to carbon dioxide, and they're made of carbonates, and the carbonate dissolves when the water gets too acid. And also they have temperature limits which are very strict and we're pushing them over their temperature tolerance. And that's, that's when that happens, then the corals bleach, they, they die, and they go white, and that's the end. So we lost about half of all the coral colonies on the Great Barrier Reef in the last two years. That's pretty serious. You can't, I've never seen anything like it anywhere. But you have been trying to get this message across about climate change for a long time, you and a lot of other scientists who, who've been working in the area. And there's been a bit in the media lately describing scientists actually struggling with their despair for the future, some people choosing, for instance, not to have children, uh, and the term eco-anxiety is coming into use. How does this knowledge that you have about what's happening and what's ahead, how does it affect you? Is it anxiety? Is it grief? Is it anger? I certainly get angry with politicians who want to have the Adani mine and things like that. Uh, I, could, I could murder a lot of them. Thank you very much. Keep going. Tell them, bastards. Um, uh, I, I feel uh, bitter uh, about what's happen, happening to the reef now. It's all completely unnecessary. If, 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 the, if our politicians, if Australians uh, had listened to the scientists when they spoke out as much as 20 years ago. I've been in my soapbox for 20 years uh, and, and there's been others before me. And look what's happened. They've done nothing and now 
we're paying, we're going to pay a horrific price. You were saying to me earlier you actually find it quite difficult to manage your feelings about what's happening. Oh, I, I find it very hard to manage my feelings about this. Um, and sometimes when being interviewed, and I'm, I'm become a media tart, which is about the last thing I would ever have been uh, uh, not long ago. But now I take any, any chance to be on, on, on the media and um, uh, slinging off um, at politicians who just lie, lie and lie. It's just sickening to see uh, the, ba the great barriers being sacrificed for a few, a small number of votes of, for people who think a coal mine uh, is more important. And what, why aren't people listening, and you know, particularly politicians? I mean, it's, is it, I mean, I guess we know why politicians don't listen at times, but sort of the broader public, is it just too painful to contemplate well, what's ahead? Well, they've, they've painted a picture where they claim, at least Frydenberg and his predecessor claim, that uh, Australia is a wonderful country that UNESCO uh, and World Heritage Committee look up to as being the icon of, of achievement. Well, I went to UNESCO's last meeting uh, in, uh, in, in Poland a uh, fortnight ago and I was given approval to make a speech and um, in which in, in that speech I put Australia's doings in, in correct, unexaggerated but in fact gentle for me perspective and uh, I got a huge applause by the 1,500 people that were in that, in that meeting and an Australian government uh, guy spoke after him, but I couldn't hear what, anything he said until he was, all, he was just about finished when, when the applause died down, but he didn't get a single clap. I think Australia's record of this is appalling, but what I find has really upset me is to see the lies that have come from our, poli from our politicians. Um, there's direct, complete lies, and that's horrible. They're using their using as an excuse to get votes because they think that the Adani mine will bring them votes and they're prepared to sacrifice the Great Barrier Reef. Mm. Uh, I think that is absolutely mm. horrific. Mm. And so, Thanks. yeah, this is something that dominates my thinking, I'm afraid, yeah. all the time. I get angry, I get upset, I get... All the things a scientist shouldn't be because we're supposed to be all cold and, and factual. Well, I am factual and our politicians are all bastards. <laughs> <laughs> Nikki, if I could come to you now. Um, in your memoir, you really lay bare your grief and despair and, to me, conveyed so well the sense of chaos and fragmentation that came after your mother's death. The writing really has got that sort of rawness of a private journal and I wondered, did you know from the moment you started writing that it was something you wanted to publish or did it, was it really just a private journal initially? N no, I, I, I guess I write to ask questions and to have them answered if possible but it, sometimes not to have the questions answered but to go on a journey and it was a journey through bewilderment, through the chaos into finding myself again. I, I felt like I, I turned into someone else. I was a danger to myself and the people around me after, with grief. I didn't trust myself driving a car or being in a supermarket or being in a car park or almost with my children. I, I had turned into something else. And writing was the one thing that gave me 
solidity and solace and, and kind of anchored me. Um, I've always been very interested in female French writers and for some reason my, one of the countries that really embraces me is France. And I, I love writers like Colette, Marguerite Duras, and um, someone gave me, shortly after Mum died, a lovely, slim little volume, um, uh, Annie Arnaud, A Woman's Story. She wrote about the death of her mother and in it she just said, I have to write this, there is nothing else I can do. And I felt the same. It wasn't a private journal thing. It was like my mother died in very mysterious circumstances. I was questioned by the police for possible involvement in her euthanasia death. It was a whole world I had no idea of. And it, perhaps the journalist in me wanted to answer the questions, but the novelist in me, when the two police officers came to tell me that my mother had died, one of them pulled out a notebook and through all their tenderness and compassion, he was writing down what I was saying about what I knew of my mother's circumstances. And from what I could gather, from that moment, I was under investigation too. And the novelist in me was thinking, but this is like a, a dead body mystery, not a murder mystery, but it's... Well, a, a crime scene was established with, with my mother's death. And um, it was like, I, I have to unravel this. I, I, I have to get there, in a way, before the police do. They investigated all her myriad doctors. She was doctor shopping... Um, they went back to the surgeon who'd uh, operated on her for chronic pain. I wanted to get there too, to understand my mother and what she had done. So, no, I never thought of it as a private journal thing. Mm. Would you mind reading us a small section? Sure. What's that page again? Uh, one, <laughs> 213 or 1.13. <laughs> Sorry, guys, I should have been more prepared here. It's just Byron Bay. 2.13, 2.13. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Is there a fix for grief? No. It's too private, too singular. A grubby, growly, secret pit I cannot climb out of. Why is it taking so long? Constable B might as well have said on that day she came to my house, you will never recover. You are now stepping into a new existence. You will ask questions about this for the rest of your life. What is needed? Some process of alerting the world around me that I've travelled off into a secret land and will remain there for some time and need everyone's forgiveness for it. When you read that, I, I think about that secret land that you mm -hmm. spent time in and I don't know if you still feel like you're there at times, but I wonder what it's like coming out and talking about your mother's death over and over at festivals, to the media. Is it helpful or not helpful? I, I, I find it wonderfully helpful in the context of... Um, I actually don't... I shouldn't say this. I don't particularly like this bit when I have to talk about it. I love throwing the floor open at the end and hearing people's stories. That's what I'm interested in because you guys make me understand. And what and I've you were flooded with stories, weren't you, when you uh, yes, wrote Yes, still, about it. still am yeah. flooded with stories. Love it, love it, come up and talk to me. <laughs> um, but what I love is I get so many older people, elderly people, again and again in various places, standing up and saying, no one is listening to me. 
No one is listening to what I want. No one is giving me air in the conversation about my end-of-life choices. We have to normalise this. We have to open up the conversation. And for me, it's been a huge journey of understanding. I did it all wrong with my mother. When she was talking about Philip Nitschke and his Exit International Forum and what she wanted to do at the end of her life and her do not resuscitate directives that she had in her wallet and all the rest of it. Like a child, I'd put my hands over my ears and I'd go, Mum, Mum, don't you want to see the children grow up? And I made it very difficult for her to have the conversation. I made it too hard in a way. So she went underground and she did it without telling any of her three children. She died a death of utter bleakness and loneliness and terror, but she was also protecting us. She did it out of love because she knew that if she involved us in her euthanasia death, we could be facing fines of up to $80,000, possible jail terms, all the rest of it. She had investigated the whole process legally, so she did it to protect us. Mm, thank you. Mm. Heather, if we could come to you now. Um, in your work, in your novels and your poetry collections, you, you touch a lot and circle around these questions of death and grief and loss. Like, for instance, in your first novel, which is called Pursuing Love and Death, one of the characters throughout the novel is writing his own obituary, which <laughs> I, I found that quite inspiring, actually. Um, and your most recent novel is really an exploration of the ripples of grief that spread out after a woman's death. And the poetry anthology you edited is about chronic illness. Why do you think you're particularly drawn to these questions around loss and grief and being unsettled, I guess? Well, I think what's amazing is I, I never even realised I was doing it until somebody asked me that same question about two months ago and I thought, my gosh, I really do, don't I? Um, so I've, I've been thinking a lot about that and I, I, there are two reasons I'm, I'm thinking maybe it, it is one of these, but... Having a chronic illness, um, I think I, it, it's not anything that is going to kill me, um, but I think that I think about death a lot, um, particularly when I'm very sick. And there's a lot of loss involved with having a chronic illness because you, well, you, you lose the obvious things, um, your ability to, to play the way you want to play. Uh, but... Um, there are some, some less obvious things, I think, too, that, that you lose, and it's really hard to get a finger, you know, point a finger at that. So you write about it <laughs> to work that out. Um, also, I think probably more than likely this is the case, and I think it's because I left America. I left my family. Um, I mean, we see each other, but I'm gone from that place, and that's a very certain death. I've chosen to live here. I love living here. I would never live back there again. But it's, it's a part of me missing, you know. So I think that's it. Yeah. Can, can you just <laughs> tell us briefly about Meniere's disease, which is the chronic illness you have, just like how, yeah. what your first attacks were like, like yeah. how bad can yeah. it get? Um, yeah, so when I was first being diagnosed in the first few years after, um, it was quite debilitating. If you've ever had way too much to drink and the room spins really violently, it can last for seven hours. The longest one is, for me has lasted seven hours. Um, I've been proactive in the last few years and started doing acupuncture for um, treatment, and now it's completely manageable. But 
there are things every single day that I do. There are choices I make every single day, every hour, um, that I just say, oh, I can't do that. That'll make me dizzy. Um, so it's manageable, but yeah, it's, it's still there. And, and then the, the horrible attacks, that can come back anytime. But could, yeah. could you read us a poem that I think is about a time when you were like, you know, in ex- extremists with the yeah. many years? Yep. It's called The Sick Room. Here he is, entering, though still, a painting hung in the doorway. Once he learns to breathe again, the room is fetid and sticks in his throat. You offer him your eyes, which have seen new things, and none of them have names. There is darkness between you, but outside is sunshine and so much sex. Silverfish, earwigs, mice going at it, and for once, He does not imagine going at it with you. You who are too weak to starve. He who holds a bowl of soup. He offers to feed you spoonfuls of himself, of heavy shoulders and deep silences after the clock chimes on the hour. It is what he can do. He hadn't asked to get off here, but isn't this where the bus stopped? Isn't this where planets align to form a path for a burning star shooting through before it disappears? Here he is, and when you swallow him, by the spoonful. You are a tree growing so slowly no one can tell except the earth. You are a circle of rain before it becomes a drop, a blooming thing, a shared thing, his very heart on your hungry tongue. Thank you. (laughs) The the writer Hilary Mantel wrote about the universality of grief. She says, even if you have not experienced a frontline bereavement, such as the loss of a partner, parent or child, you have certainly lost something you value, a marriage or a job, an internal organ or some aspect of mind or body that defines who you are. And I wonder, do you think it's fair to say that the losses and griefs that come with chronic illness are not particularly well acknowledged in society? Um, well, it, you know, as Nikki was saying, there's a lot of things that people don't talk about. Mm. Um, and I think illness is something that people don't like to talk about. I think the ill people don't want to talk about it because they're afraid they're going to sound like they're complaining and who wants to hear anybody complain? Um, and there's also a feeling that you don't want to put people, you don't want to make people uncomfortable. Um, yeah, so the conversation needs to be started. And I think if something's not written or if it's not on television, it's not going to start. <laughs> so. You went looking for poetry of, as you call it, solace and recognition yeah. when you were first diagnosed, yeah. didn't you? And what did you find? Well, this was, this was 18 years ago. So um, I suppose my, I was very limited at that time with, with my knowledge of poets. Um, so I was sort of just searching around, you know, in my own library, looking, um, Googling um, illness and poetry, and finding really horrible examples. And there just wasn't much out there. And it was really frustrating to me. And I started thinking that there's not much in literature either. Um, when I wrote my first novel, I gave, I gave my, my 65-year-old character Minier's disease. And it was a really wonderful way to, to I suppose, to talk about it. Um, but the feedback I got from first readers and then from critics as well was that he was a very boring character, and that doesn't surprise me because he's sick, <laughs> and he doesn't die, mm. and he doesn't thrive, 
he's just sick every day. Um, yeah, I think I'm going to put, uh, I'm going to have a sick character in every book I ever write from now on. <laughs> Fantastic. <Yeah. laughs> and get one on TV. <laughs> yeah. Um, Nikki, um, in the piece you read earlier from your book, you ask, is there a fix from grief? Why is it taking so long? And I know you wrote that not so long after your mother's death, but you were like seeking an end point to the grief. And I'm wondering how much your ideas around grief and grieving have changed over the last 18 months, which is how long it's been. Well, I know now that it, it, it doesn't end. It stays with you. There's something about a suicide too. There's a, there's a sense of um, incredible rejection and abandonment that stays with you um, and bewilderment. Why? Why did this happen? My mother didn't leave any note. A couple of weeks afterwards, I, I asked it, my darling, darling readers in, um, of my column in the Weekend Australian, you know, was this empowerment or despair? I don't understand what my mother did. Can someone help me here and explain? I got the biggest mailbag I'd ever received. And letter after letter said, you know, Nikki, this was empowerment. This was a death of courage and control. Celebrate it. Celebrate that strong, amazing woman that your mother was. And I absolutely do. But then I got one letter from a woman in her early 30s. She'd had postnatal depression after her first child. And she said, Nikki, I just need to, uh, you to understand the mind frame of your mother, she said, you know, because I've been in a similar thing and in terms of selfishness and all the rest of it of the suicide, she said, we're not thinking about those people around us, how it's going to impact upon the family, how people are going to have to pick up the pieces and keep on going. We just want the pain to end. And that's all we're thinking about. And I thought that with my mother, you know, she had chronic pain. She'd had a foot operation a year before she died to fix chronic pain in her foot. She left the hospital with an opioid addiction. And the last year of her life was this spiral into this bullying, tormenting pain. Um, and um, that, that was her existence. She just wanted that pain to stop. And she thought she was protecting us by not involving us in her death. But consequently, she broke us. And the reverberations are still there very strongly in my children, actually. And that's the one I can't, I can't control. And that's yeah. what breaks my heart and still makes me kind of angry about the situation. My mother knew she was going to do it, but she chose to leave. Uh, the last time we saw her was my, my eldest son's 15th birthday. And it's like, oh, Mum, why did you have to do that? Why did you have to stay in his birthday from now on with that? Um, so there's a lot. There's a mm. lot there. Mm. Yeah. Thank you. Charlie, um, just coming to personal grief now with you, you've suffered terrible personal losses and griefs. Your second son, second child, a son died when he was three days old and your daughter Noni drowned when she was ten. You went on to train in grief counselling and you supported parents in Townsville who'd lost a child. Was there comfort for you in being with others who understood what you were going through? Um, it was supposed to be at the beginning, but <clears throat> no, it wasn't. Um, it, would, it, um, it dragged me down all the time. Um, when 
you engage, when you have something, the worst thing in the world happens and you've got to survive and live on. Uh, the whole world changes. You see people who empathise and some people who don't. And you can read the minds of which group of people they're in. And I was doing that all the time. Um, so some of my friends became ex-friends for a long years. Um, and the reverse happened. But when I uh, was... I helped other people because I could. There wasn't anybody else. What did you do with them? I uh, talked to them. I talked to the parents and uh, let them bring it all out. And they knew my story. And they, I wrote a little book, it was never published, a private little book about the death of my daughter and what, what happened to me. So they read that and that was a good thing because it made a, a bond between... It was usually the mother... That men are too strong and proud to uh, have this go through this, but um, they were in those days. And we're talking in 1980. Um, but I had to give that away because it was um, I couldn't sleep. Mm. It's I still can't sleep after 37 years. Mm. I still can't sleep so uh, properly. Um, so. Uh, and in fact, in my memoir there, that was the hardest part of the memoir to write because the, um, um, the editor of Penguin said, Charlie, just can't uh, flip, flip over it so easily. And when she got more or less happy, then my partner Mary said, Charlie, this won't do. You've got to write again. And so I'd be in front of it on the keyboard and tears pouring down and hours ago past that I hadn't got a single sentence out. Mm. That was easy, the hardest part of the book. And it just <coughs> shows that's why I'm here, I guess. Um, these things just don't go away. I think they never will for me. Grief does never end. It just never mm. goes away. Mm. Um, so um, all the people that tell me, oh, Charlie, haven't you led a fabulous life diving all over the world on coral reefs? What a wonderful life. Well, yes, but boy, geez, it's been the other side. <laughs> and, um, and so that's one of the reasons, another reason why I wrote that memoir. Um, it's, um, it um, puts an unusual human perspective on what I suppose other people would say is a really glamorous career. Mm. Yeah, it's not been so glamorous for me. Yeah. Was there anything that has given you solace? in your grieving and particularly perhaps in the early days? Um, and in the early days, yes, writing the story down. Mm. Um, that um, it went round and round and round in my head all day, every day, um, conversations with my daughter. We just wouldn't go away. And uh, that's So you were just having conversations with her? In my head. Mm. And uh, that was why I wrote that book. Well, I, never, I will never publish it. I couldn't bear to edit it even. Um, but some part of it is in this memoir. Um, but that was, um, that was a really um, good healing um, exercise for me. Did, did nature give you solace, being in nature? Oh, the nature. Oh, it always does, yeah. yes. I'm a, I'm a bit of a weirdo. Um, I mean, because the first part of your memoir is this incredible description of a boy who just has this fervent passion for nature. It's yeah. beautiful. Yeah, I always think I'm a much, a much uh, more akin to Aborigines than I am to Charles Darwin. Um, uh, I, I just love nature. I love being 
alone in the world's nature. I don't fear anything that shouldn't be feared. Um, I love being alone. I've been alone in dangerous places. And for most of my life, I've been able to stop thinking when in, in a beautiful place and just commune with nature without a thought in my head. It, it was, it's all feeling and it's no, no thinking at all. And I perhaps do that for 20 minutes. Well into married life. And I'm hoping I can get it back again. But um, uh, it, it's, it's, it's been a very big part of my, um, of my, um, my life uh, to be able to go sit beside a river and just watch. And I'll see dragonflies zipping over the water or and hear birds or the, the wind in the trees and not think about it and come back really at peace, really at complete peace and rested. And so I don't sleep much, but I don't need much sleep because I do that. Mm. Uh, How would you say that grief has changed you over 37 years? It's changed um, my... Um, uh, it's changed my career. Um, I'm never... I'm, I'm never... Um, able to uh, be abandoned. I can never go on, on, a, on, a, on a diving trip now without fear that something might go wrong, that uh, could all happen again. Um, so I'm not at peace with that at all. I don't think I ever will be. That's made me more cautious as a, as a diver um, than I used to be. I used to be pretty gung-ho sort of diver. Um, and uh, I think um, it has made me much more aware of um, the plight of other people. So the seven o'clock news is actually uh, sometimes really traumatic for me when I hear something horrible. Once it would have been a, a news item and go away and do something else, make a cup of tea and forget about it. But I now uh, really sinks in. I really feel for that person mm. or for what's happened. Yeah. And uh, I don't know if that makes me a good person or, or, a, or a not good person. I think it's just what's... It's just the way it is. And I can't listen to the news now without being really affected or seeing a war zone and children there um, without being in, in profoundly affected. And it really is. Um, I'm thinking of not watching the 7 o'clock news anymore unless, they, unless it's some more good news and not bad news that we get all the time. Uh, I can't get used to it now. Um, yeah, that's all. I, I need a suit of armour to face this <laughs> 7 o'clock news. Um, Heather, I wonder if you would read a poem from the anthology. It's um, Peter Boyle's poem. It just it brings to what Charlie was saying about being in nature and particularly as a boy. It just brought to mind that for me. So Peter Boyle had polio as a child, didn't he? He's a farmer now, but had polio. And this is a poem he wrote. <coughs> it's called Paralysis. Laid out flat in the back of the station wagon my father borrowed, I look up. The leaves are immense, green and golden with clear summer light breaking through. Though I turn only my neck, I can see all of them along this avenue that has no limits. What does it matter that I am only eyes if I am to be carried so lightly under the trees of the world? From beyond the numbness of my strange body, the wealth of the leaves falls forever into my small, still watching. <laughs> I love that. I love that poem. <laughs> Just um, picking up on what you were saying earlier, Charlie, about the conversations that you had 
with Noni after her death. And in your book, you talk about it being something of a comfort or it helps sort of carry you through that early time. There's something, the writer C.S. Lewis wrote a lot about grief um, after his wife died. And one of the things he wrote was, bereavement is an integral and universal part of our experience of love. It is not the truncation of the process, but one of its phases, not the interruption of the dance, but the next figure. So it's that idea that the relationship continues, but in, in a different form. Um, I wonder, do you relate to that, Nikki? Yes, in, in a way my, my book is a, is a love letter to um, a mother-child relationship, a difficult relationship. You know, I, my mother was the love of my life, but she was also the hate of my life. I feel terrible saying that. She knew my Achilles heel and she could go for it with absolute viciousness. She knew how to fell me like no other. Uh, I, you know, when I was, when I had my mother in my world, I used to joke to some of my girlfriends that when she died, I'd be relieved. And, you know, I think, how could I have even said that? And when she actually died, there was no relief. There was a tightening of the grip. And I feel like now, you know, for many periods in my life, my mother and I, we didn't talk to each other. There was the piracy of silence between us. You quoted Hilary Mantel earlier. Uh, she quoted uh, in, in a book of hers, Margaret Thatcher. And Margaret Thatcher said that from the age of 15, she turned away from her mother because she had nothing more to say to her. There was kind of this cold judgment of her mother's life and her choices in life. And I felt a little bit of that with my own mother. And I think she felt the chill wind from me. She was always trying to veer my attention to her. And when it didn't happen, she'd just turn away completely. When my mother died, I looked back at all those ridiculous periods of not talking to each other and going off in a huff and not apologising, whatever it was, and thought, what a waste. Mm. What a complete waste of time and energy between us and and the beauty of our relationship was I moved back from 15 years in London to be closer to her and we did come closer together in her old age I think we were both two battle-scarred old warriors who were just so tired of the whole situation we just let it go mm. and that was such a relief and in a way I think that might have helped mum to let go with her own decision. So after she died, there was a complete re-evaluation of our very prickly relationship and I realised there was such a deep seam of love and companionship there and I wanted to honour that in the book, honour that difficult relationship that was still saturated by love. Mm, thank you. Heather, can we talk about your novel now? Um, <clears throat> Jean Harley was there, which is a great title. Uh, it explores in all sorts of ways the notions of memory. And I had, you know, I just had such a um, powerful sense of how someone is kept present after their death by the memories of everyone around them. And not just their immediate circle, but the broader yeah. circle. And I'm wondering if you have your own experience of holding on to memories like that. Were, were you prompted to write this novel by a loss of your own? I think um, I, I, was, I was really interested in exploring perception and how we see, how we see people, how people can never really know us. Um, 
but they all feel they know who we are, and they all sort of take little pieces of us, um, and such as such as that with death, um, you 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 try to remember that person, and you have memories to remember them by. Um, so they're really powerful, powerful things, but of course they're they're not the truth. Um, they're not the truth of that person. So, you know, I, I think I was trying to, to work through ideas on that. Um, certainly a friend of mine was dying when I began thinking about, about writing this book. And I guess as I was editing it, it, I think editing is harder when you're writing things that are, that are difficult. It is for me. Um, when I was editing it, I, there was a lot of memories coming back about my friend, and, and basically I realized I had done it all wrong. I had, I had handled her death all wrong, uh, which is really a silly thing to say, because how do you, how do, how do, you do it right? <laughs> um, so, yeah. In what ways had you handled it wrongly? Well, I don't know that I knew what to say. I don't know that... Um, I don't know that I said enough. Um, I think I was always holding back. Um, anyway, I had to write the book, I think, to work out how to handle it yeah. right. And um, it's, she's, not, she's not in this. It's not based on her, but she is very much in, in it. Mm. The, the most touching, um, moving chapters for me were the ones you wrote from the point of view of Jean Harley's young son. Yeah. Um, you, know, you have three children, was it hard to write, to place yourself in the experience of a motherless child? Yeah, editing was really hard. Um, uh, first drafts weren't hard. Um, they were the easiest. The writing, or his name is Orion. Writing Orion was, was very easy because my friend had a um, four-year-old son. So I found that um, worked really well for me. But editing was really hard, and, and I did put my own kids in, in the place. And, and I cried a lot while editing it. Um, yeah, I think the first draft, it, it was more of a focus on my friend's son, and then the editing, it all came back to my own children. And um, if I read from one of those chapters right now, I would probably cry. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Charlie, <clears throat> if we can come to back to the grieving for the losses and the changes ahead with climate change. Um, you know, people talk about learning to walk beside grief. You know, if, if, if grief doesn't end, if there's no end point, perhaps what we do is we walk beside it through life. But the idea of walking beside that grief for the losses that come with climate change is harder because the changes have only just begun and they're going to get worse. And uh, it's a grieving that will go on as the losses mount. And I know you're, you're campaigning for change. Are you doing anything on a personal, practical level to face what's ahead? Yeah, seeing a counsellor. Because <laughs> you've got a doomsday kind of picture of what we're facing. Well, it is really hard because um, if I describe what lies ahead for the Great Barrier Reef, um, most of you will probably not believe me. I'm used to not being believed. Um, I've been not believed for 20 years now um, by a lot of people. Um, so far, I haven't made any mistakes. And that makes me a very um, vulnerable person and looking to the future because that future is, is really horrible. 
what, and how do you imagine the future for your children and future grandchildren? Well, I don't know if I'll have any grandchildren. Mm -hmm. um, I talk about the future with my children and they uh, are getting geared up as much as they can to face a world that's coming, not the one they're in. And that's what I would advise for all children. I was speaking to the schools yesterday. That's what I was telling them. Um, and it's a very negative um, context to live in. It's, it's, it's like living in a, in, in a, in a cage with a, yeah. a minus one sign on it. It's, it, it, um, and it's, but it's, it's there. Um, and I have to say, I, um, I get weary of being dragged through the whole process by one journalist after another, but I have to. So I've done well over, well over now uh, 70 interviews in the past one and a half years about the demise of coral reefs. Um, that's an awful lot, sometimes two a week. Um, to How is that, talking about it over and over and over? Um, sometimes... If it's been a rough interview, meaning rough on me emotionally, I just feel um, I can't get on with my work, which is the science of corals, building a giant website. Um, I um, pour myself a whiskey and sit outside and talk to the dog. That's what I do. <laughs> I'd like to bring another poem. I'm all for bringing poetry into panels, and I think poetry is really appropriate in this uh, context because so often people turn to poetry for solace in times of upheaval and grief. Nikki, in, for the epigraph of your memoir, you use the final two lines from a poem by the Canadian poet Anne Carson. Can you read us the poem and then tell us the, the lines you chose and tell us why you, you chose them? Yeah, I love Anne Carson. I, I, when I'm, I've just finished a novel now and I, I just find I can't read any other um, fiction while I'm writing my own fiction, but I, I read poetry and I use poetry as my tuning fork as I write because I need beauty around me and distilled beauty, which I find what poetry is. So this is Sleep Chains from Anne Carson's, Anne Carson, one of my favourite, favourite poets. Who can sleep when she, hundreds of miles away, I feel that vast breath fan her restless decks? Cicatrice by cicatrice, and I may have pronounced that wrong, and if I have, please tell me, someone. Sounds good. <laughs> Cigarette <laughs> to radio people, me and Sarah, so we're very aware of saying something wrong. <laughs> um, cicatrice by cicatrice, all the links rattle once. Here we go, mother, on the shipless ocean. Pity us, pity the ocean. Here we go. And I loved that poem. And when I read those last two lines, here we go, mother, on the shipless ocean, pity us, pity the ocean, here we go, that was like, that's it. I have to start my book with that. And it has to unfold from there. And that's exactly what it is, because I feel like grief, in a way, Charlie, particularly, is a shipless ocean, a never-ending shipless ocean. And you feel very alone in it. And some people speak about 
feeling cracked open by grief. Someone I know said that she feels like she's been cracked open and is now more open to other suffering, which is what you were speaking about earlier, Charlie. And for her, that brings its own exquisite beauty. And I think that idea of being cracked open, it's like your cover, Nikki, has got cracks in it that are filled with gold. Uh, and you talk inside about the Japanese philosophy of mending cracked and broken things using gold. Um, why does that idea resonate with you so much? Well, we will have the poem too. Brief, briefly, perhaps, okay, why okay, it resonates with you, because we're me, getting close to time. Um, I have these very treasured ceramic lanterns that are a map of my children's growing up. It's all their natural world, the stones, the leaves, the shells that they've collected throughout their lives, stamped into porcelain and fired in these beautiful ceramic lanterns. When I came back from the UK to Australia, a big wind... Um, I had a painting above them. It, it lifted the painting off its hooks and crashed it down on these lanterns, broke them. And I was devastated because they were my most treasured, treasured possessions. And I'd heard about the process of kintsugi, which is an ancient Japanese method of repairing beauty and perfection with threads of gold. So you create something different and it's very much an imperfect object with a different beauty to it. And it, a strength to it that is flawed but compelling. And I thought, that is my mother. That was our relationship. That, to me, was a good metaphor for grief. And that's why I, I weave the metaphor of Kintsugi through my book. And my wonderful publishers put it on the cover, yeah. The Gold Cracks, which Gorgeous. was just wonderful. <laughs> and then just earlier in the green room, we read um, a poem that mm. celebrates the art of Kintsugi. Mm. <laughs> yes. Can we hear it, Heather? Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, oh, it's called slightly different. Yeah. yeah, same yeah, same thing though. But this this poem, when I was reading through the submissions, then it was a blind read. I I just went, this this is the poem that's going to open up the entire book. It's by um, a poet named Anne M. Carson, who's from Australia. It's called Axiology. If I was ceramic, I'd be kintusukurai, pottery which has been knocked, dropped broken into shards, then mended with gold or silver lacquer, a delicate meander of liquid gold flowing into the breach. Kintsukurai, the whole, sorry, the word a whole world, evoking the kind of place where mending is valued more than the break, where old is treasured more than new, where putting things back together is an art form, things more beautiful for having been broken. Will you please join me in thanking Nikki Gemmell, Heather Taylor-Johnson and Charlie Barron. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. This session was recorded live as part of Byron Writers Festival 2017. You can find other recorded talks and discussions from Byron Writers Festival on our website, byronwritersfestival.com.